Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, the author of a timely new book about corruption in world soccer, uncovered in Brooklyn. The New York State lawsuit against the Trump Foundation, plus a decidedly Brooklyn dance performance at King's Theater. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford, joined in the studio by producer Ross Tuttle. Hello, Ross. Hello, Ashley. Can I wish you a happy Juneteenth? You may. Happy Juneteenth. Thank you. I wonder, Ashley, can I ask you a question now? Yes, ask me a question. Do you think Juneteenth will ever become a national holiday? You know, I do. I think that, like most things in America, it will happen once everybody else is like, who cares? Which I think everybody else is now. <laughs> so I think it could be. Under this administration, though, maybe not. not it's happen but I have hope for soon. the future. You do. Okay. I do. Can I change the subject? Change the subject, Ross. Rather abruptly. I know this topic is something maybe you're a little uninterested in, but I think that puts you in the minority since, I don't know, half the world right now is watching the World Cup. I think you underestimate my feelings about soccer, but right. that's okay. They're growing. They're yeah. growing. They're growing. Yeah. I understand. Football. 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 Sorry, Shireen tells us it's football. <laughs> so in a minute, we're going to talk to an investigative reporter at BuzzFeed, Ken Bensinger, who has a timely new book out. It's called Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. But when he's talking about the U.S. in that subtitle, mm -hmm. in many ways, he is talking about Brooklyn. Is he? Well, that's what I like to think because it was the Eastern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office here in Brooklyn right. that was working on uncovering the case and investigating and prosecuting. But to tell us more, we have Ken Bensinger joining us via Skype from Los Angeles. Ken, are you there? I'm here. All right. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Since this is my interest in bringing you on, I get to ask the first question. Yes, you do. So the Southern District of New York is the one that gets most of the attention when we talk about U.S. attorney's offices in <laughs> New York City. Uh, they do all the terrorism cases. Why was this an eastern district of New York investigation? Why was it that U.S. attorney's office that was looking into this? And what were they looking into? So this case was begun with uh, um, an FBI agent um, out of New York City, right? So the, the FBI field office in New York... It's unique in that they can take cases to three different judicial districts. They could take it to Southern District. They could even take it to Jersey, or they could take it to the Eastern District. And in this case, the FBI agent, who was an expert in Russian organized crime, um, had an existing relationship with a prosecutor in Brooklyn. And he knew that those guys were good. They were really good at busting complicated organized crime, particularly Russian stuff. And so that was his first choice. And he went to this prosecutor that he knew and asked him if he'd be interested in um, in taking the case, and the guy went for it. Like, uh, this this prosecutor in, in Brooklyn was somewhat of an expert on these kinds of things, perhaps? His name is Evan Norris. He's a Brooklyn resident to this day. He was an expert in organized crime stuff. Um, he'd done a lot of cases involving uh, the Gambino crime family in Brooklyn, and he'd done some other you know, sort of international cases involving organized crime. He hadn't done any sports cases or anything involving FIFA. I don't know how much he'd done on Russia, but he was a guy who knew how to, to build a complicated racketeering case. Ken, what was the initial suspicion that started this? Like, I'm, I'm not even sure exactly, like, why we know, like, what happened? Why do we know about this? So, actually, it's, it becomes very much of the moment today. It feels very timely in, here in 2018, why the case began back in 2010. Mm -hmm. um, and the answer is, like so many other things these days, Russia. This case began um, as a look into what Russia was up to in the world of soccer in 2010. 
And if you you know you recall in 2010, uh, we didn't think about Russia the way we think about it today. Mm-hmm. This was during um, the reset that Obama was doing with Russia. And so in you know spring of 2010, Russia was signing on to sanctions against Iran. Uh, we were taking Russia off different sanctions lists and doing all these nice things to sort of get along with Russia. And we we thought of Russia as this warm, fuzzy place. This was years before Crimea or anything. So we were in a pro-Russia the moment. The FBI agent I mentioned earlier, what he discovers when he goes to London um, to work on a different case is that Russia was apparently doing questionable things in its attempt to win the rights to host the World Cup that we're seeing now. So the World Cup you guys mm. are talking about ongoing now. The decision to award it to Russia took place in 2010, and Russia was competing against um, five other countries that all wanted that right, and it was becoming apparent that Russia would stop at nothing to get the tournament. It, there's another fun name to throw in the mix that that, uh, that played a, a key role in all that. Um, there's a guy by the name of Christopher Steele, who I bet rings a bell. Oh, yeah. Just, the Steele dossier. Um, that's the one. So Christopher Steele was actually the guy who got it all started. He, mm-hmm. he was had just left the MI6, which is the British spy agency, and started a corporate intelligence firm. And one of his first clients was the English bid. England was trying to get that World Cup rights, too. And they hired him to do research on competitors, and particularly Russia. And what he came up with was that Russia seemed to be up to no good. He's the one who tells both the English bid and the FBI agent that there's something there's something rotten in the state of Russia mm. uh, they might consider opening a case. Now, this agent, who I think may have, just to touch on Brooklyn, may have grown up in Brooklyn, certainly a, a New Yorker from birth, had never really heard of FIFA, or at least had never really thought much about FIFA, certainly never considered a case against it. But he was very intrigued in the Russia angle, had been looking for cases to bring against Russian oligarchs and that sort of thing. And so that's what he brought back to that prosecutor, Evan Norris, that we were talking about. Wow. And so, Ken, sorry, we're almost out of time, but just real quick, if you can give us kind of the summation of what then transpired, who was prosecuted, and it ended up turning its focus away from Russia, right, and looking more at at U.S. activities and people connected to to local or to this continent's soccer. Great. That's right. Um, So it went from, it went quickly to in a different direction when they grabbed another New Yorker. In 2011, they flipped, the, the IRS got involved and helped flip an American by the name of Chuck Blazer, who was grew up in Queens and lived in the Trump Tower of all places, and got him to flip and cooperate. He was the most powerful American soccer official probably ever. Um, he was also someone who didn't believe in paying taxes, and they busted him because he hadn't filed taxes in decades. And so he cooperated investigation, wore a wire, and taught these guys everything they needed to know about how soccer operated and how corrupt it was. That led to a series of more busts of people, secret busts, to get more cooperators. Tapes, you know, wire recordings being made of everyone, all kinds of documents coming forward. And finally, it culminates in May 2015 with the, the 6 a.m. arrests in Zurich of all these officials in this, like, massive um, operation that culminated there. Huge world news. You may recall it was front page for days and days and days. It was the only thing people were talking about. And um, it was this huge, huge stain on FIFA and a, sort of a shock to the sport. It led to the resignation of the president of FIFA. It led to, you know, multiple, multiple indictments and arrests and ultimately convictions and was, you know, completely sort of changed the face of the entire sport. You know, Ken, if anybody had told me football and FIFA was this dramatic, I might have signed up a long time ago to pay attention. Thanks for doing this, sir. But it was in Brooklyn. It was fantastic. It was in November and December, and it was right out of a gangster movie, including a defendant who made a throat-slitting gesture twice in the courtroom to a, to a Oh, witness. my gosh. Oh, it was amazing. 
Wow. Well, so the book is called Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. Thanks again, Ken. Thanks for having me. Coming up, a conversation with a local journalist about the attorney general's recently announced lawsuit against the Trump Foundation. Don't go away. Obama was sued 26 times while in office, George W. Bush, seven. Donald Trump, who likes to say he's done more than any other president in history, is right, at least when it comes to this category. During his presidency, he's had to defend more than 100 lawsuits, actually closer to 150. And that's not to mention the 1,000-plus suits before inhabiting the Oval Office. Well, the latest comes from the acting attorney general of New York, and the suit is against the Trump Foundation, the nominal charitable nonprofit organization that the AG's office alleges was working to profit the president and his campaign. To tell us more about this, we're joined by Brooklyn Patch reporter Noah Manscar, who's been covering the story. Noah, welcome to 112BK. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for being here. Can you first tell us a little bit about Patch? Because you guys cover... A range of issues. Everything from yeah. this waitress just told somebody to spit in my food <laughs> yes. to these more, you know, political, topical issues. Patch is actually a nationwide network of hyperlocal news websites. Started roughly 10 years ago, opened up or expanded in, in New York City a couple years ago, and we've been growing since then. So we aim to cover community-based issues, you know, hyperlocal stories that have people talking in their neighborhoods. So we have six reporters, including myself. I'm kind of a general assignment reporter who covers broader topics like this lawsuit, city politics, education, things like that. But the other five have specific geographic areas that they cover. So we have a couple in Manhattan, a couple in Brooklyn, and one in Queens. So we're trying to do that and fill kind of the, the hole in hyperlocal news that's kind of grown, especially since DNA oh, yeah. Info and, and Gotham is shut down. Gotham has been resurrected, obviously. But right. yeah, that's, that's our mission, and we're hoping to let more people know that we're there. Yeah, um, so. absolutely. So can you just start by telling me with this particular situation, this particular article, what is this lawsuit about? Sure. So it's a pretty lengthy uh, petition, uh, 41 pages, filed by Barbara Underwood, uh, who's the attorney general for the past month or so. So there's basically three prongs to it. And the first was that the petition calls it an empty shell that mm. was used by President Trump to make payments to various entities to settle lawsuits in some cases that he also used to benefit his presidential campaign. The board essentially was a non-entity. Mm. Three of his children sat on the board, Eric Donald Jr. and Ivanka. Eric and Donald Jr. are still on the board, I believe. So they haven't, the board hasn't had a meeting since 1999. Woo, 1990, I was 12. Yes, <laughs> I, was, I was six, so Ooh. the foundation had no employees. Yeah. So the people who were running the operations were employed by the Trump organization, the president's private business. Right. So there are plenty of conflicts of interest that arise there. The second piece of this is that uh, nonprofits cannot be used for political purposes. And the president famously held a fundraiser early in the 2016 election campaign, Iowa for Veterans Groups, that produced a total of roughly $5.6 million in donations, 2.8 million of which went to the Trump Foundation. 
The foundation in name dispersed that money to different veterans organizations, but the campaign had complete control over who they went to. The president handed out big checks of these donations um, to representatives of these organizations at campaign events. The foundation also made uh, a pretty large political donation to campaign of Pam Bondi for Florida Attorney General, and then actually lied and said that uh, it gave money to a nonprofit, but with a similar name that was based in Kansas, which was obviously no, not true. This is <laughs> I, like you're you're saying this, and like I'm I'm fit, like I'm getting it, but you just keep going, <laughs> and it feels egregious already. Like, yes, it, it just sounds. I'm not certain or sure why anybody would even think, as a person with some but limited experience working in nonprofits, I have no idea why anybody would think they'd be able to get away with it. My significant other actually works for a nonprofit. When I showed her this, she was like, it's incredible that they went for so long um, yeah. without getting caught. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of this was made, there were false filings that were made over several years. This wasn't all just recent activity um, that they engaged in. Uh, there were several kind of the attorney general alleges transactions that were made to benefit the president and his businesses, his golf clubs, his Mar-a-Lago resort, even a, a private piece of family-owned land in Westchester County. Yeah, it was I... a wide range of purposes. <laughs> this is just, I, I feel like, I, I don't find this funny. I, I just, it's absurd. Like, I'm astounded by, to be, just the audacity. It sure. seems to an absurd level. Or, or is, is this... Can you just answer me this? Is this something that companies try all the time at this level? That's hard to say. I actually read recently, you all pointed me to it actually, a CNN piece by the prosecutor, former prosecutor in the attorney general's office mm -hmm. who handled the famous Trump University case. Yes. And he was saying that if any other individual who was not a public figure engaged in this sort of behavior with his or her nonprofit organization, it wouldn't even be a question that there would be a settlement, there would be, somebody would be held to account for this. Right. So my general impression is that regardless, I think most nonprofits try to follow the law. They try mm -hmm. really hard with the limited resources that they have. Right. But some, you know... Do something as don't. egregious as this. <laughs> yes. Do you think he'll attempt to settle? Well, the president says that he, he's, he's said very adamantly that he will not settle the case. But... That really doesn't give us any yeah, indication. <laughs> um, yeah, it doesn't mean anything. So yeah, yeah he, he said the he, same thing about Trump about University. Trump University, yeah. and he's he settled for a rather large amount, twenty five million dollars. Twenty five million dollars, um, absolutely. And you know, sometimes legal stances can soften as as cases proceed and, mm. and evidence mounts. Another yes. factor here is that the attorney general has referred some of this conduct to the Internal Revenue Service and mm -hmm. the Federal Election Commission. Mm. So. Pursuant to those investigations, there's also a chance of federal criminal violations here. So if that's the case, if that happens, and I, I think this is what a lot of people want to know, is there a chance that anybody will actually be, be held accountable for what happened at the Trump Foundation? Like, is there a chance that that would happen? And also, if that happens, is jail time part of it? Well, based on this petition, this is a civil issue, so... Mm -hmm. Based solely on this, jail time would not be right. a part of the conversation. Right. But Attorney General Underwood and, and before her, um, Attorney General Schneiderman, who resigned, of course, um, after allegations yes. that he abused several women, right. they've been really aggressive in taking on the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. So 
as far as I'm concerned and, and from what I see, the Attorney General's office, I, I think, is going to be resolute in getting some sort of judgment in their favor, holding the Trump Foundation, uh, the President, to account in this case. Right. Noah, thank you so much for this. Thank you for writing the piece. Thanks for coming on and talking with us about it today. Thank you so much. This coming Sunday, King's Theater on Flatbush hosts a special dance event featuring Brooklyn-based students and performing artists. Inspired by the hit movie Dream Girls, it's called Dream Abundantly and intended to inspire young black girls to achieve their dreams. It's the brainchild of dancer, performer, and founder and artistic director of Abundance, Academy of the Arts. Her name is Charisma J, and she recently joined me to talk about her organization and the upcoming event. Here's that conversation. Charisma, thank you so much for being here. Oh my goodness, thank you for having me. Talk to us a little bit about your dance history. What brought you to Crown Heights? So, uh, basically, I started out in the womb dancing. <laughs> Literally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and funny story, so it was actually how I got my name, Charisma. My mom would test out different names, and Charisma was the only one that I would dance to. And so she did it for a series of months, obviously. And it was like, okay, this is that girl's name, right? And so when I came out, it was only right to kind of put me into the performing arts. So I am a Brooklyn native. I actually am right from around here. Right. Went to LaGuardia High School for dance, went to NYU, uh, studied with Ron Brown, you know, so it was only right in that kind of give back mission to bring back to Brooklyn what I love so much and have been doing for so long. My goodness, you are, I mean, this is, doesn't just sound like a dancer through and through. You are Brooklyn through I'm and Brooklyn. through. I'm Brooklyn. No, no. <laughs> like, so, so my makeup bag says Brooklyn is my borough. Like, yes. it's Brooklyn. Like, yes. that's it. I love that. <laughs> I love that. When you reflect on five years since founding the company, five years, how does that feel? Feel. Well, there's a power in five, right? And yes. as we approach five, I'm like, whoa, to see this seed grow. I started teaching when I was 10 years old, and so my knack was always with the babies. And there's always been sort of a connection to them because they, to me, are where I see hope. You know, I would have those, those dragged Saturday mornings where I have to get up and go teach while other, you know, friends of mine are out hanging out at day parties or whatever before right. there were day parties. And I'm like, oh, man, like, why can't I just Not be? Me. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then I get there, and they're like, hi, Miss Charisma. And I was so excited. And I was, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is why I do what I do, right? Because then it keeps me younger. I was watching a study um, from this village in Asia where they live very long, mm -hmm. and they asked the people, the elders, like, why do you live so long? And one of the main reasons is that they keep young people around them. Oh, and I was like, wow. there it is. There so I'm getting is. ready to be 120. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and look the exact yes, same. exactly. Looking the exact same. So at the studio... What do you do? Like, what happens there? What kind of classes do you right, guys offer? Right. So, 
magic happens there. Magic. Right, magic yeah. happens there. Black girl magic, brown girl magic, right. black boy magic, all kinds of magic yes. happens there in the good way. So we are a 501c3 arts organization. We basically are dedicated to helping people access their own abundance. That's mm -hmm. why the name is Abundance, right? right? And so it's not only about dance, it's really about all of the arts because the arts have a healing force, right? Yes, they do. And when I watch the transformation of people, what, no matter what age they are, I really see how the arts transforms them in a grander way in their lives versus it just being, oh, okay, they were able to conquer this step, right. you know, or conquer that song. It's like, whoa, you are now the valedictorian in your high school graduation, yeah. or you got married, or you, you know, it's like to see all of these different things. I mean, I've even seen people heal, literally, right. like walk in there in the middle of radiation or chemo, and the other day, one of my clients is walking by the window, full head of hair. She's yeah. like, hey, girls, oh. like, hey, hey, oh. Like, wow. Right, abundance, that's yes. abundance. I love yeah. that, I love that, and I love, you know, that you talk about dance not just as a way to be physical, but dance as an art. My introduction, actually, to dance as an art, because I, I didn't, when I was younger, I didn't have access to a lot of, like, things to be able to see them, and even though I right, love right, them right, so right, much. Right, right, right. But I did get to see a stomp performance, and that was my introduction to dance as, like, as a, like an in, like a performance Awesome. And I know that you were part of Stomper. Yeah, once a Stomper, always a Stomper. Talk to me about that experience. So I was actually graduated from NYU, and I'm like, what am I going to do now, right? It was during the recession, and I'm thinking, like, okay, it's just going to fall into place. My name is going to be a light. I'm on. I'm right. ready, right? <laughs> and then about a year or so into just auditioning for different Broadway shows and getting mm -hmm. cut at the end or the final callback, I was just like, what do I do? What do I do? And I actually started saying abundance affirmations and bringing abundance into me, right? So I say these affirmations, I start doing an abundance dance, and in the midst of me feeling like, is this really going to work, or like, what do I, what's, what, what's these affirmations about, mm -hmm. I had a stomp audition. I was like, oh, okay, you know, I'll go, I'm kind of scared, I don't really know if I'm going to get it, or, you know, right. and I'm still new to the word abundance and the affirmation, so I'm oh, just kind of yeah. playing it safe. So I get to the end, and they don't cut me, but they say, oh, you know, we want to keep you on record because we have been known to call people back within two years. And I was like, two years? Yeah, right. Like, I'm not even going to stay on and, like, wait for you. So, right. oddly enough, in just, like, well, willing and, and wishing that abundance would really come into my life in a good way, I got a call two years to the date from Stomp, and I was Get like, out of here. whoa. So how did Stomp change my life? It was one of the biggest confirmations, wow. aside from my school, that wow. abundance is real. Like, go with it. It's working. Like, it's not really like I'm sitting there and I'm just saying it, and that's all that there is. Right. It's that I was saying these affirmations. I was training. I was, doing, I was manifesting. And so yes. Stomp really holds a really deep place in my heart because... I mean, they taught me so much about everything. Yes, everything. I love that. Now, talk to me about the King's Theater Dream Abundantly event yes, on yes, June 24th. Yes. I want to know more. Okay, so we are excited because we were kind of the inaugural Brooklyn Arts Organization to tap into King's Theater and to just, you know, ask, hey, 
what what how much does it cost like we we need a theater space like we right. want to do grand scale production right. what is that right. like so, right. and now with dream abundantly we are telling the story of the four little girls who were bombed in the Birmingham, oh, Alabama wow. Baptist Church. And we are using their story to help inform our dream girls, mm -hmm. our little girls, of their dreams and how they can go after it, even though those four little girls didn't get to live out theirs. Wow. How do people get tickets? Any way you can. You Google yes. us, you <laughs> Instagram us, you Facebook us, but essentially, so tickets are on sale at Ticketmaster website, mm -hmm. at the box office for King's Theater, and also they can contact Abundance Academy, and we have tickets on site, too. That's fantastic. Rizma, thank you so much for thank being you. here. That's the show for today. Tomorrow, we'll be back with Zephyr Teachout, who's vying to become New York's Attorney General. And a lawyer who says he was barred from his Brooklyn synagogue because of his work with a Muslim American advocacy group. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>